Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. week on the Garden DC podcast, I'm joined by Karen Rexrode. She's a professional horticulturist and noted photographer in the Washington DC area. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Kathy. So I can't wait to dive into our conversation all about hardworking perennials and some of your favorites and how we can take care of them. But first, I just wanted to check in with you and ask you how this past year has been and then talk a little bit about your professional background. So how did 2020 and early 2021 treat you? You know, I, I have to say that being in the business that I am in, I was, um, I was busy. I was crazy busy. And, you know, initially we didn't know how this whole pandemic was going to go. So you know, I told um, the two people that I, the two states I work at, I said, I, I don't know how this is going to work. I might not be able to work. And then they both did the research and came back and said, oh, no, no, you're totally essential. You need to be here. So I, <laughs> I, I ended up, you know, it was actually quite lovely because I work um, most of the time by myself in the beautiful gardens and, um, there was just no problem with me being able to work. So that was a good thing. I, I was, I was, um, I was happy for that. I will say. I'm glad to hear that. And of course, gardeners are essential. We all know that. Yes. <laughs> and so you talked about the two estates that you work at. So your official title, I guess, would be estate gardener. And can you talk about kind of where those are located and what those gardens are like to maintain? Oh, absolutely. So, um, one of the gardens is literally like maybe a mile and a half from my home. And it was President Monroe's, one of President Monroe's homes. And it's uh, a very large property. It's actually 1,200 acres. And the gardens are probably about five acres. They were re, uh, redone, reconstructed in 1930 which was when Dumbarton Oaks was uh, built. So it's very much a copycat of that design and style. And um, it's, um, it's really, truly a lot to take care of because it's 91 years old this year. So we have always had, I've been there, I will be going on 15 years. We have, um, you know, trees that are passing and, sun become shade becomes sun etc um so it's you know and, and I, I love that it's so close the other garden is in warrington uh the name of that one is eastwood both are privately owned not open to the public so the one in warrington is close to 200 acres um and actually the gardens that i work at in the house that is associated with it is not not occupied nobody lives in it uh, the gardens were designed by Donna Hackman, uh, who is, you know, uh, locally very popular and, and well known. And so I maintained those gardens, um, both gardens weekly. I work three days in the Oak Hill at the garden near me and one day a week at the other. And, um, you know, it's pretty much just me and my, uh, <laughs> my my phone where I listen to either music or I listen to a lot of podcasts and um I, you know it's just it's just great work actually wow so both of the estates are in kind of horse country we can call it Virginia correct oh yes absolutely yes the mi middle you know Aldi is the one and Warrington is the other and very much both horse country yes and the one that's not occupied currently, are they planning on coming back? I'm curious to know why they're still maintaining the garden there. So on the property, um, it belongs to S.W. Rogers, the company. And it was initially bought 
and set up to be an event center. And it did function as an event center for a few years, and the gardens were designed for that so that my job was to have them looking as good as they could look every single day from spring to late, late fall. And um, it's a perennial shrub. They're mostly perennial shrub borders surrounded by boxwoods as sort of your wall. And the uh, it and it wasn't even the pandemic uh, that that they they made the decision not to do the the events. There are buildings on the property that have been restored. There's two old farmers' homes, um, a smokehouse, a granary, and an old barn. And some of those are rented. So they're keeping the property. Uh, some people do live on some of the other buildings, just not at the main house. So, I, you know, they've decided not to sell it. It was on the market for a little while, but she's happy to keep me there and maintaining those gardens, which are pretty intense because as a shrub perennial border, you're always having to sort of beat back the shrubs in order to let the perennials be happy. Um, and it, it takes somebody that really knows how to manage that um, a challenge I'll, I'll say uh, you've got to be pretty heavy-handed with the pruners to keep the shrubs at bay even though many of them are dwarf but yeah that's the bottom line it was an event center for a few years and are they ever open say on the virginia garden week or with garden conservancy or are they just totally private so we were open for Historic Garden Week, and I want to say that's four or five years ago. And that was my first experience with that, and it was really interesting. Um, Donna uh, Hackman, again, who designed the gardens, initiated that. And she and, and some of her help um, put in 8,000 bulbs for that. Um, wow. I mean, everything from you name it everything daffodils fritillarias tulips we had to keep uh deer deer uh you know netting over some of the tulips till just before it it happened and the sad thing was that was the year that um that we had a really warm spring and the tulips finished the week before the event but there were still plenty and there have been to this day because of all those bulb plantings so so many bulbs that come up in that garden it's really Beautiful. But back to your original question, um, you know, I know that the Warrington Garden Club is coming in, but otherwise she's not, um, you know, she's not opening it up to, to anybody else. Well, at least you get to enjoy them, Karen. <laughs> and, you know, that's the thing. I, I did a Facebook Live um, at Oak Hill this last spring. Because it was just, and it was not planned by any means, but I went into the gardens and I couldn't stand it. It was so beautiful. So I took my phone and I, you know, I announced that I'm in the gardens and here we go and walked around with it. And of course, you know, people responded to it, um, you know, just they loved it and they wished I'd done more. But, um, and I should because it's just a shame these gardens are so beautiful and especially Oak Hill given that it's you know coming on a hundred years you you it's just a humbling experience to see these trees and shrubs especially yeah and gardens are so ephemeral and if we were uh to visit your Facebook page I assume that recording from that live event is still up there so people could check that out yeah oh I'm sure it is yes absolutely okay. and do you have the address of that Facebook page for our listeners? Well, it's it's just under my name, Karen Rexroad. So that's how you find me. Okay, perfect. I'll share that in the show notes and links uh, so people can check that out. So let's go back to the beginning. I like to ask our guests, were they born with chlorophyll in their veins? Did you spring out with a green thumb or how did you come into gardening? So I, you know... I, I love everybody. You hear all kinds of stories about how people came into gardening, and sometimes they're just so, uh, you know, roundabout ways. But <clears throat> I'm trying to think. So my father was CIA. We moved. Um, my first, uh, we lived in Berlin till I was six. What we typically did was came back to the United States for two years, and then we'd be off to some place for four years. So uh, Berlin was, was, you know, I was six when we came home, 
But I was definitely of that generation growing up where you would be left to play outside. And your, your mother would bellow for you to come home for lunch and then yell for you to come home for dinner. But otherwise, you were on your own. So we ended up uh, going to Okinawa. And that was very much the case. I was outside, you know, all the time with my sisters. And then we ended up going to Mexico City. And even though that was a huge city, we had, um, you know, all the local people. We had a group of us that would hang out outside and play soccer and things like that. So um, I think that sort of led to, I know from my Okinawa days, my window sills were always uh, covered in potted plants, and that was the same in Mexico. And, you know, when I had my own apartment, I was going to college, I had, you know, all kinds of indoor plants. So, you know, and the interesting thing for me is that my first job in the industry was at Kenny Roberts Garden Center in Fairfax. And I wanted, that was a primarily tropical greenhouse um, situation where all the greenhouses were, they had they had two, they added two more, it was all tropical plants. And, you know, you have to think about my history I was living in tropical countries, so it just, you know, it, it was an epiphany later in life that I realized, well, of course I love tropicals. And I loved tropicals for, for a very, very, very long time. Uh, you know, once I got my job at that nursery, I just sunk my teeth into it and uh, would read Exotica and Tropica, and they were like my Bibles, and I would study all the plant families and they, um, then we eventually, I met my husband, they had a family farm, we bought 10 acres, my parents had moved to Panama, I, we had a, an apartment with two bedrooms, and one bedroom was the tropical jungle, but I went to visit my parents in Panama for a month, and when I came home, most of my lovely tropicals were, were dead under my husband's care. Oh no! I know. It, I was so I was so upset, and he was so upset because here he hadn't seen me in a month, and all I'm doing is accusing him of killing my plants. <laughs> so um, we ended up with ten acres on the farm that we decided to buy, and it, I think the two things made me realize that one, the visit to Panama showed me where tropicals grow. Coming home and finding them not alive was telling me that I was really trying to do something that might not be meant to be at the level I was trying to do it, and that maybe I should take my interest to what plants do grow here. So I shifted completely at the nursery I was working. The perennials were just beginning to uh, come into fashion. So I started at Kenny Roberts Garden Center in 1976. And by the late 70s, we were starting to, you know, become enamored with these English perennial borders. That's what everybody was sort of looking to to recreate. And so the time was good because the nursery picked up perennials, started selling perennials, and I became the perennial person and was taking them to our 10 acres and trying them out. So, you know, that's kind of how I came to love perennials, and that's still my primary love in in uh, in the world of horticulture and that's so interesting Karen that you bring up that perennials are just coming into fashion in the late part of the 20th century and into the 21st century and uh, for those of us uh, who garden from that period on we can't imagine what what was it like before that was it just all annual bedding plants and shrubs so I, I don't know. It might have been that the interest was more still towards food, maybe. I, I'm not sure. Um, even when the trend towards perennials, as I know it, I mean, you know what it was? It was houseplants. If you remember, the 70s was all about, you know, mm-hmm. macrame hangers and having these huge. I mean, I, I followed all the trends. I did exactly what was going on. My big tropical heyday was right when everybody was doing that. It was it was very uh, common to find houses with lots and lots of houseplants in them. 
So when we kind of, maybe it was that the baby boomers were also coming of age. Now they had property. Yeah, that could be the influence as well. And that they started to travel or you're looking at beautiful uh, English gardens as the ideal and seeing those big uh, perennial and mixed shrub borders. Um, So yeah, a lot of different influences coming together. And of course, then there was wealth and free time um, that maybe people didn't have in the 60s and 70s that came into uh, being in the 80s. And there might be, but I also remember that when I was getting into the perennials, to my knowledge, back in the late 70s and even the early 80s, there weren't any books that were written in the United States about perennials. They were all English books. Like Ruth Clausen was one of the first to have a book, and you know, eventually we came around Alan Armitage when I had my nursery in the early '80s was another influence. But and then and then it came around. You know, we finally had publications that we could read about plants that would do well for us. Whereas before that, you know, it was their seasons would be uh, a little more tight about you know having things bloom together that doesn't happen for us. So I I think that was part of it, too, is the information. Hmm. Yeah, so fascinating, the the garden history and the trends. And uh, people don't realize the ups and downs. And, of course, it's kind of circular now. Houseplants are big and back in, but so is edible gardening at the same time. And, of course, people still want their gardens to look beautiful. And you mentioned your nursery. So let's talk a little bit about you owned Windy Hill Plant Farm in Loudoun County for 25 years. Is that correct? Right. So so what happened is well, as I was working at Kenny Roberts, and I was there for seven years, and I had gone through the tropical phase. I was starting to become... <clears throat> um, really kind of um, stuck on perennials, um, I was going to have my first baby. So um, we had the land and I thought about all of the different languages I had learned in my life and lost because I was pretty fluent in Spanish when we lived in Mexico. Um, I, as a small, small child, I was very fluent in German and lost that. And I never really from Okinawa was never fluent in Japanese because we were so isolated, but I decided that I didn't want to lose the language of plants. I refused to let that go. I loved it so much. So the only natural thing to do was to take my 10 acres and to start a nursery. So I did that and it was a really small um, endeavor initially, uh, but it grew very quickly. And I actually burn out my house pump watering every day. And we, my husband um, started to look for a way for us to grow that would let us have uh, a lot of water because he knew, you know, I mean, it's essential for a nursery So on the farm, there was a three-acre pond, and it was right next to Route 50, which would put us right on the road. So he approached his mother, and we bought that land. We bought three acres down there, which we kept expanding on. And we opened up, uh, and, you know, part of the perennial love is that, for me, was that I could do it without really having greenhouses, real structures. I could... I could divide, I could even grow from some from seed. I could do my own growing without having the overhead of, of the heated greenhouses. But once we moved down there, I hired um, Kathy from Dulles Gardens to help me learn how to do annual growing. We put in cold frames, we put in greenhouses. So yes, that's really how the plant farm was born. We had three acre pond. We pumped out of that. We, um, built the greenhouses. We had the growing house. We had the retail houses. We had cold frames. So yeah, I was down there for 25 years and um, raised both children through that nursery. And um, I was, again, I mean, I sunk my teeth into it. I loved it. It was my everything. It was my, you know, breathing and eating and everything. I um, I can't tell you how much I love this business. And, and uh, I think everybody should garden. <laughs> And so I didn't realize, I think, that you literally had a plant farm 
Like I just thought it was a, a sweet name for a garden center or a nursery, but you were literally growing a lot of what you were selling. Whereas these days, most garden centers and nurseries are bringing in a lot from um, other growers or from the Eastern shore or from elsewhere. Well, I always knew that the only way I could succeed in my opinion was to be different so, you know, the beds that were around, we did have um, perennial beds around, but they were filled with things like peonies that I was digging because those peonies were impossible to find. Um, you know, we did a lot of dividing out of our own beds. I would buy one plant retail and let it grow for a while, um, different kinds of irises, you name it. And, um, you know, our grower who showed me how we, we set up a schedule where, you know, like Monday through Wednesday was seed sowing and then we would buy in the plugs and we would buy in bare root. And we did do some of that buying in a finished product, but we did a lot of our own growing. And that was the only way I felt that I could be different than the guy next door or the big box down the street. And do you miss having the plant farm? You know, I miss I, I miss having a greenhouse, I think, more than anything. There's just nothing, you know, I just love a greenhouse. But the workload, what, what ended up happening is we grew so big, I needed employees. There was no way to get around having employees. I also needed to have um, a watering system that would handle, you know, we had, I think in the end, we had seven different water zones that would automatically come on and water those areas because you couldn't hand water anymore. Um, and the greenhouse growing, we needed a grower. You know, I can't tell you how many growers I went through. It, it's a very, um, you know, it's a lot of work. And it we went through a lot of different people. And I, in the end, I think um, part of what, um, turned my head towards maybe not doing that was the fact that I never felt that it got easier, that it only got harder. And, and I, you know, I would go back to, I got into this to grow plants. I love plants. I didn't get into this to necessarily, you know, hire fire, babysit people. It, and, you know, a lot of people will tell you that it it gets down to where you 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 lose a bit of the what you started it for. Exactly, and the business side of things can you know weigh down on you so much, and and you just wanted to, as you say, play with plants and garden and share that love of gardening. Uh, but it is, I think, a reoccurring fantasy with many gardeners who are diehard gardeners to have a a little nursery or have that as their maybe their retirement. Um, to like say raise daylilies or and sell them or something like that. Would you have any advice for them? So, so I always felt you know you hear a lot about I'm going to retire and have a nursery, and my head just spins at that idea because you have to realize that you are always having to work with the weather. So we had um, we all of our greenhouses we basically got them for free. We bought a cold frame, but all the other structures were free because people had gone out of business. Um, or one of them was because they had three greenhouses and two of them had collapsed from snow weight. So they had the one left and they got their insurance and they were happy to get rid of the rest and be done. So, um, you work with the weather and if it's an ice storm or a snowstorm, we we had the type of greenhouses that the one especially wasn't a peak roof, so it wasn't really designed for snow load. So you would have to be down there in the worst weather. Ice was worse than snow. It was heavier. Uh, the cold frame wasn't even heated, the cold frames. We had two. So we would have to put struts up to hold them in case there was a blizzard or you know something that we couldn't get down there. All of our vehicles, we had to have four-wheel drive to be able, we lived three driveways away from the nursery. I can't tell you how many times I slept on cardboard in the greenhouse with a kerosene heater because the electricity went out. Um, Yikes. It's just, it's just crazy, and people don't realize, you know, the worse the weather, the more you have to be there. 
Or, you know, how many times did you have a major freeze where you lost? You were, there have been years where you would lose. You know, we, we had one year where we, we had gotten more into Woody's and we had a lot of maples, uh, Japanese maples, all kinds of maple trees. But, I mean, the freeze was so bad that it killed them, outright killed them um, and damaged any shrubbery that was outside. It just literally froze a hole in the center of them. And, you know, that, those kinds of things, you know, you just never knew what your spring was going to be. And if, it, if they called for a blizzard, you had to be ready to go and be on site. Hmm. So it literally is the, the life of a farmer. Horticulture is agriculture. And, you know, forewarned is forearmed. But just like uh, with almost any endeavor, when you go in with rose-colored glasses, those soon, <laughs> the reality will sink in. Yeah. And, you know, I saw a lot of nurseries open up and close around me. Um, we had one around the corner that opened up and she lost her greenhouses to snow. You know, people think, oh, you know, they, they just don't realize that it can do that, that kind of damage. But, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I was very, very proud of the fact that I got through crazy times. The most damage we ever had was there was one year we had a blizzard that was so bad that, um, I mean, I would walk down Route 50 in the middle of the road. There was no traffic on the road. Um, and I, we had one of the cold frames, the very back of it kind of caved in because at that point I had given up. I'd been up all night trying to keep the weight off of the greenhouses. And, you know, it was, a, it was a, an endeavor between me and my husband. We both had to go. We learned how to work inside and outside. But I feel, again, I'll just say I felt very proud of the fact that um, through thick and thin, we managed to get by. Hmm. And it's, that is so much to be proud of. 25 years with a nursery, I think is, is a great track record. And I think something that contributed a lot to local gardening, because I bet there are so many of those customers you had back in that day who still remember visiting you, who still have plants that they purchased from you and fond memories, of course. I, you know, I hear it all the time and, um, it's been closed. We're going to go on 16 years that we've been closed, but every spring and, and even other times of the year, I have the reoccurring dream that I'm opening the nursery, that I get enough people saying, well, can't you open for spring? And um, the night before last was another one um, where it, I opened the nursery and it was a half nursery and half carnival. <laughs> There's something Freudian right there. Well, it's, it's just... I, I can't get the dreams to stop even, you know, and they're usually full of angst because I'm like, do I have enough plants? I don't have any structure. You know, it's, they, they've morphed over time uh, to where I'm, I'm leaving it a little at a time. I can tell that it's not as strong and as um, there, I can tell there's parts missing now in my dreams. It's just, it's just interesting. Yeah. Uh, after doing it that long, I, I don't know when those reoccurring <laughs> dreams will stop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of dreaming, we're all looking forward to this upcoming growing season in our gardens and spring and summer to, to get here as well um, for our beautiful perennial beds. So let's talk a little bit about your favorite perennials that are low maintenance, that are, I'm going to use the, the phrase, well-behaved. How's that? Yeah. Um, so... So as an estate gardener, my job, of course, is maintenance. And I look at, I look at, I mean, I've got, there's the garden at Oak Hill has a lower, lower terrace that has four quadrants in it that are all perennials. And I have, there's beds all around that. And, you know, there's a cutting garden up top. There's all kinds of gardens. But I look at the perennials in those spaces. And as a, as a maintenance person, I ask myself, how much do they give me in return for what they ask of me, for what I have to give back? And I look at it almost from a perspective of square footage. Do they bloom enough to earn their space or do they, you know, kind of hold their own without demanding very much? And there's certainly um, some that do it so, so above and beyond others that you have to pay attention to them. So some of my favorites, um, 
we can talk about sun first. So I love I love the Amsonias, and I especially love Amsonia Blue Ice because it has two seasons. So you've got to love that. But also, it doesn't seem to have any issues uh, where you're worried about insects or fungal problems, and it just looks good. Um, at my in my own gardens at home, I have Amsonia. Uh, Tabernay, Montana, and I've had it do some seeding and actually become a bit of a brute. But Amsonia blue ice by itself, you get the beautiful blue flowers in the spring, you get the yellow color in the fall. So I really, I like that it's two season and that it's, it's, it takes up its space very well. Uh, Calamintha Montrose white is another one because, mm-hmm. yes, it, it, it's a funny one in that, you know, you tell people it's a mint and they all, you know, they're all going, oh, no, I can't have a mint in my garden. But, but it's, it's, it's woody and it grows to, you know, two feet by two feet and it just does that every year and doesn't do anything else. But it flowers for two to three months in the worst heat and it never seems to whimper or pout or anything during, you know, dry, hot. So I, I love that one. Um, pen stamens I like because that you can get pen stamens now that have beautiful foliage. Um, that even as you cut back the flowers, you've got you know good foliage that is almost evergreen or ever red. Um, so I'm I'm a fan of them, and I have I personally have a thing for euphorbias, not all euphorbias, but you know I do like the amygdaloides and the polychroma. I do like especially bonfire. So, you know, I feel like those, even though they may not have great big showy flowers, they, they have a tendency to earn their space because they give you, you know, um, other attributes in turn. For shade, um, we can't, you can't go wrong with a hellebores, my gosh. Um, I'm a big fan of epimediums, for sure. And, uh, you know, the, the, the geranium, of the hardy geraniums, my favorite is still Macorizum Bevins variety because it's um, it's evergreen. It's easy to deadhead. It has fall color. It's the most um, kind of uh, pungent as far as the fragrance from the foliage goes. So it's a little more deer resistant than some. So I'm, I mean, those are off the bat my favorites. I have some that I'm maybe sentimental about. Um, the asters, which, you know, now we're calling them symphiotricum, but I love the, especially the big floppy, like, um, cordifolium in the fall, uh, which blooms so late October, November. And I also like the, for sun, I like the Korean chrysanthemums like Sheffield pink Mm -hmm. because it goes so late into the fall and, you know, really truly does look pretty clean all summer long and doesn't need deadheaded. So, you know, they give you a lot for the space that they take up. And for the Sheffield pink chrysanthemums, do you find that they start to rot out or die in the center? How do you take care of those? So the interesting thing is when uh, the grower that I mentioned we had at the plant farm, we had a bed um, by the pond that was 150 feet long, and she was playing around with hybridizing the Korean mums. But we also, um, so we filled, we've, we put some of her, we were testing some of hers uh, in that bed. But um, I went on a trip, and I don't know if it was a perennial plant convention or what it was, but I was gone for a while, and my husband decided to dig a pond at the plant farm. And I came back and told him that was a really bad idea because little children could fall in it. And it was not, a, you know, a week later that one did. So we, we, she was fine. We caught her, but we, I just told him we have to fill it in. This isn't going to work. So we filled it in basically with this gritty, horrible, rocky mix that was probably more rock than soil. And it was on a really horrible South exposure so we put some of the Korean mums in there, and you should have seen them. Oh, my gosh. The one plant got seven feet wide. But the trick, I think, is that they want sun from sun up to sun down and nothing less, but they also want that lean, lean, you know, poor soil. That's a great tip because a lot of them you're using 
great gardening soil or amended gardening soil in the rest of your perennial bed or border. Um, so that might be a choice for an area where other things are tough to grow. Well, and some always fall over. You know, I, I don't want Ryan's pink unless I've cut it in half in the summer. Um, we and, and then the last thing I should say about them is that it was so funny. Here we have all these ones. She was naming them after um, different gemstones. And the, so in the long border, what she wanted was a white. She was looking for a pure white, which really wasn't around at the time. And then we found a variety named Innocence. So she ordered it to be able to use it in her, her hybridizing. And we put it in the long border with the others. And now all of a sudden, we had seedlings popping up everywhere. Apparently, innocence wasn't so innocent. <laughs> she was creating or giving us the, the fertility that we didn't have with the others. Um, so so I, really, I really think that I, I like Sheffield because I have found it to be kind of the maybe the, the leanest or the shortest or the one that flops the least. And, and I've heard that from other people. But yeah, you do, you do have to watch. There, there, there are more and more of them available. Mm-hmm. And if it flops, then I would say most definitely um, do one of two things, either lift it and give it that really gritty, poor soil or cut it. You know, e- even if you prune them back, they will still bloom that late time frame, but they'll be much, much fuller. So you referred a little bit to that summer cutback, which some people call the Chelsea chop and some other people have different nicknames for it. Do you cut back all your perennials mid-growing season, and, and what's your timing for some of those? Well, no, I don't. I mean, I do the flocks. We have a lot. So you have to realize that at Oak Hill, the garden's being created in 1930. It's a very old-fashioned style garden. So we have a lot of peonies, a lot of iris, a lot of flocks. And when we used to have the garden tours, they were in May, May was that month, so we had a lot of peonies and a lot of iris for that, um, and a lot of bulbs as well. Um, As far as cutting back, I kind of let the plant tell me if it needs to be cut back. If I see it flopping, then I will consider doing one or both of the things I just mentioned. But going back to that, when I was sort of studying the square footage of peonies versus iris, I noticed that the iris weren't blooming as much as the peonies were. And it made me kind of think back to my growing days as to why why would the iris be flowering less than the peonies? And I'm talking about bearded iris. And I remember that for growing, when we would receive the rhizomes was mid-August. And you could set that rhizome in the soil, on top of the soil in a gallon pot. And by the end of August, the roots would be completely full through the pot. That's how quick they make their new growth. And you know that the flowers come out on that new rhizome. So to me, what I realized that was probably happening was that those rhizomes at ground level in that critical time frame of late August into early September were being crowded out by taller perennials. Anemone japonica, phlox, you name it. So I started, um, this will be the third year, I started going in in the middle of August and cutting back everything over the bearded iris to Hmm. encourage the new growth and to encourage new growth with more sunlight. And I found that last year that I had a lot more flowers it was starting to come up to par with the peonies. And I think this year, probably that will, that will be the case. So, you know, it's, it's kind of knowing when a plant needs that light uh, to help it produce the best flowers. Um, And, and, you know, like we used to grow cushion mums at the plant farm. The last year we planted them in the field. We were literally planting them in the field and digging them. That was still the thing to do. We did 7,000 in the field. But with cushion moms, it was a three-time cut, um, middle of May, middle of June, middle of July, whereas these Korean moms came along, and then you didn't have to do that. And then the, the breeding changed with the cushion moms where we had these new colors like grenadine and peaches and colors that weren't there before. And also, all of a sudden, they weren't as hardy as they used to be. 
So they were treated more as annuals. Um, and there's still plenty of them that are hardy, but um, you, you just didn't see the hardiness that you used to. But yeah, so cutting back to me, I kind of let the plant tell me, you know, if it's looking ragged, because my job is to keep things looking good, is, is then to cut it back. And what is your definition in general for low-maintenance perennial? Does that mean touching it just once a year, twice a year? Where do you have your cutoff? So, so I, don't, I don't know that I could define it that way. What I also find is when a perennial is looking absolutely fabulous, that you think you can just walk by it is the time that you need to look under it. Because you're going to find a lot of, um, it's so thick and so dense and so happy that you're going to have, um, if you lift all of the branching or the stems, you're going to find underneath that you're getting rot or you're starting to have a problem inside. So the, the asters, especially things like October skies or any of those that are just so dense, um, if you're not paying attention to that, then what happens is before you know it, you've got, and that's because our humidity is high and you know, we tend to, as we go into fall, get some rain and with cold, cooler temperatures. Uh, things like lamb's ear, especially that's the case. You lift up that foliage, which is looking so good, and you've got all this, you know, rot inside. So for, so for me, I, my key is when they're really, really looking good, I also lift them and look under them and try to, you know, find the problem before I see the problem. So I don't, you know, I... For me, it's a constant. I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at them, but I would definitely say what I mentioned before, Amsonia. So I don't, I cut it back once a year, and I don't necessarily want seed pods, so I do cut them. Helleborus, I cut back the old leaves, and I cut. I don't want any more seedlings. We have the old-fashioned Helleborus at Oak Hill. So as soon as they're really truly going to seed, I remove all of the flowers. Uh, which is sometimes, you know, you might consider it premature, but good Lord, we have hundreds of hellebores there. I don't want any more. <laughs> uh, Epimedium is a great one because without one, you know, you're not having that problem with interior rot. You're just cutting them back before you have the new buds, which is, you know, we're getting into a troubled time now if you've waited till now because the buds are all coming up. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, those that I mentioned – are some of them that I probably have to touch the least or handle handle the most that are good on their own. And so we're talked about perennials that give a lot but ask a little. What about those that do the opposite? Give little but ask a lot. Are there a few that you would say don't bother with these in your perennial garden. I, I don't know if I can do that. People have such sentimental attachments to so many. Um, yeah, okay, so I don't, I don't bother with delphiniums at all. Uh, to me, I do larkspur. You know, we, we have seeding larkspur in the gardens, and I have my own. My, my way of managing them is, is much like Cleome. I'll let Cleome grow. Um, so these are, these are winter annuals and summer annuals. So I'll let the larkspur grow flower, and then I will pull up all of the larkspur, but leave one or two plants, collect the seed when it's ripe. And that's one that's out of the way. So it's not in your face in the main garden. And then I will distribute the seed as I feel it needs to be done. Um, the Cleome, I will let them grow and I will sort of do the same thing. I'll manage them and I'll take out if they get floppy. As far as perennials go, I mean, you have to question sometimes if, say, a peony is really worth it because they flower for such a short period. They always get peony botrytis. Um, the iris can be a real problem. Bearded iris, they get bored. They get um, aphids. They get root rot. But try to tell somebody that they shouldn't have them. And, you know, I mean, even some of the anemone japonica is one that I even said in my, one of my catalogs that I don't want to sell it anymore. It has foliar nematode, and until we get clean stock, I'm not going to offer it for sale. And people would argue with me, I need my anemone japonica. And for me, it's a floppy plant, but in the right place, it's a fabulous plant. So I, you know, I, I, I guess we'll boil, it just goes down to personal preference and how much time are you willing to put into the square footage it takes up? I was afraid you were going to say peonies, Karen. <laughs> 
because they are my personal favorites and and i will admit they probably give a little for a lot of effort but i think they're so worth it and you're right everybody has their own personal favorites that they're willing to stretch a little bit more and invest a little bit more work and maybe money into but yeah and i'm surprised uh that you mentioned japanese anemone in particular being um, a problem plant, but I can definitely see that and how they might be, uh, you know, get a little ratty at different times of year and, and not so sightly for a perennial border. Well, and the anemone japonica doesn't just get foliar nematode or have foliar nematode most of the time, but there's also the blister beetle that gets on them. So, and that's, I find that I only get blister beetle when they're in full sun. But we could go back to euchra. I did not mention euchra as, as a plant that I uh, consider low maintenance, and that's because we, we go back to uh, the vine weevil, and the vine weevil just decimates them. And a lot of people think that they've rotted on them when, in fact, it was a vine weevil that killed them. And if you plant another one on top in the same space where it died from vine weevil, you've got the same thing happening. So I find them to be not long-lived, and it might just be they do get a woody center, but also that the vine weevil can be devastating with them. So they can be a real struggle. I, I, uh, I've lost most of them in the gardens where Donna Hackman designed them, and part of that was fighting the vine weevil, and now uh, it's age. They've gotten very woody in the center, and um, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to keep putting them back in because I, I've been – doing that, you know, literally, I can't imagine maybe 20 a year I've been putting back in to try to keep the garden the way she designed it. So some of it is, is insects that maybe we don't even know about or see that can be the problem. And I think with hookra, it might be that container growing is the way to go um, for some of that uh, those issues and just to keep dividing and moving them because of keeping on top of getting ahead of those insect issues. Well, the vine weevils in the soil are in the root system. So, yep. you know, if you bought the plant with, the, with that problem, um, then it's, it's a slippery slope, really. Because to, to, there's, you know, I understood you could drench with neem oil. I tried that. It worked for a while. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, Eucharist and containers are fabulous, no doubt. Yeah, that's definitely a way to grow them, I think. For perennial combinations, do you have any formulas, say, that you think are tried or true? I am recalling in particular walking around the campus of American University with you on one of the annual uh, field days that they hold there, and you were pointing out several of the beds and several great combinations. So. Uh, when I did my last catalog um, in 2004, that catalog that I wrote, and every year we had a themed catalog and a themed kind of way we were going to do business for the year, that one was on plant combinations. And I had kept notes over the years because when we put our displays out, we would take containers with flowering perennials in them and do would-be gardens. Like at that point, you know, they were full, you can't see the containers, and we put them in these arrangements where this is what you should do in your own garden is plant these three or four or five together. Look how they look. Um, so I came up kind of with this good neighbor rule was that one should not detract from the one next to it when it's in flower. And I, I kind of keep that in mind when I'm designing, you know, it, it, so that's where those really critical ones that have good foliage play that that um, part of being the good neighbor despite maybe the time of year or um, you know what they have next to them they still look good so like the amsonia that has the good foliage that's persistent the penstemon that's persistent um, even some of those really late flowering asters you know the later they flower they keep looking good you know, it's usually your your kind of ratty time with the perennials right after flowers. So those late blooming perennials can be those good neighbors through the rest of the year. Um, but I, I'm just I just um, I'm keen on on one shouldn't take away from the other when it's trying to do its best to look good. And I, and I also like you know this also why maybe I like the the. Um, 
the astrocortifolium. It has that way of growing that arches over other things and sort of hides or connects uh, parts of the garden uh, like a like a froth. And and I love fine foliage things with with bolder things. I love anything that makes like a froth that goes between. And that's why I like some of the grasses. Um, you know, we can talk about Spirobolus doing that. We can talk about Aragrostis, lovegrass, doing that. So those can sort of hide some of, of the things uh, by just making that froth over them and connecting plants together. So I love using frothy plants. Um, Schizocariums are another one in, in the grass department. Um, but but I, I try to stick to the good neighbor rule when I'm putting them together. I love that uh, phrasing of froth <laughs> and, and combinations there and your concept of a good neighbor. So one not outshining the other. So when one is bl in bloom, the other one is kind of resting or just sharing the foliage. Um, what do you think besides the foliage texture where you described a fine foliage or a bold foliage uh, versus foliage colors? So there might be more of the yellow green spectrum or blue green spectrum to that green foliage. So I'm, um, I'm very much an artist and I do, you know, try to follow complementary colors and, you know, um, working, working with, harmonious colors. Uh, and I remember it was very popular for a while to do this kind of a pink and an orange thing together. And when we had the plant farm, I decided, I, I, I don't know, there was a book that came out and again, it was an English book, but it showed what we would describe as gaudy gardens and gaudy gardens had a lot of this pink and, and, and orange together, um, which can work for sure. Um, but I decided at the plant farm that I wanted to make the front bed by the road, that gaudiness. And I planted all these crazy colors. And in the end, I hated it. It was horrible. Um, but you could definitely, you, you know, I, I think, I think your eye tells you, you know, unless you're colorblind, I think your eye tells you when it's off. And I tend to be playing on the safer side and do harmonious colors. So Pinks and blues together, and chartreuse, you can't ever go wrong with it. I love, I've always loved green flowers. So green flowers, even with some of the grasses, especially the grasses that have blue in them, are fabulous, like uh, echinacea, lemon meringue with, say, um, panicum, north wind. That was a combination I saw at Longwood Gardens, and it, I, 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 I would always recommend to people when they came to the nursery and they were trying to figure out what to plant with something was to find the plant they loved, pick it up and walk around and place it next to other plants until they saw that it came together. And then they would know that it would work. And I always say the same with, especially when you're doing your containers in spring with annuals, find the one you love and begin walking around till you find the combo. Um, it, your eye tells you it's right. And the light is so important as well. So we can dream and go through plant catalogs and mail order catalogs and look on our internet searches, but that's never going to be the same, of course, as going to a real local garden center and seeing the plants in person. Right. And eat, well, even if um, I, I knew a landscaper who she's so, so good and she would design amazing gardens, but she would just bring in, um, she would have, say, a Siberian iris blooming. She would bring in the flowers from that Siberian iris and walk around my nursery and just, you know, hold it up to things to figure out what, what was that, that color palette that would work. So, um, you know, it's sort of the same idea. You already have something in your own garden, but you don't know what to put with it. Yank some flowers and take them to the nursery with you. Because it's it's nearly impossible for us to know, you know, the the, the range of really truly what, what sometimes is such a surprise what works together. Until you see it, you would never ever have guessed that. So true. And there are also those happy accidents where you literally just threw some pots together and wow. <laughs> they turned out fabulously. So that, that that's always a nice thing to happen in the garden. Yeah, we love that. 
So you did mention uh, a little bit about your artistic interests, and that's kind of been a thread through a lot of our Garden DC podcast is so many of our plant people are also artists in one way or the other. So let's talk briefly about your blog and some of your artwork. So um, my father was a photographer for the CIA, and without me really realizing it, all my life I had cameras around. And so when I when I got bit by the plant bug, I went crazy, crazy, and that lasted for, you know, all, all those years. But in the end, at the plant farm, I started to get the photography bug, and it, part of that was doing lectures. I needed good slides. I was disappointed with you know, my, my, what photography I was doing. I asked my father for help. He got me my first D, uh, D, DSLR. No, not SLR, not digital, not digital yet. And, um, then I ended up moving forward with better cameras and joined a camera club and realized that this was all I had time for, for art was photography. I didn't have time for any other form of art, but I'd still always, as a child, I imagined I was going to grow up and be an artist. That was really where I was going, but my love of plants kind of got in the way. So um, I found myself, once I closed the nursery, in a gallery, and I ended up in another gallery, but it was such a hard sell. I was very, very frustrated. So I... uh, turned around and knew I needed to do something 3D. But at the same time, I ended up with a studio space that was really huge. And I had all the lights and I had all of the, 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 the stuff that went with, you know, backdrops, everything for really doing wonderful photography. So I named my blog Studiology because it was sort of a studio and I was going to explore that. But of course, I realized that my love of plants was as strong as my love of art. So it became a, a, a mix up of both. And then um, I knew I needed to go 3D. I knew I had to do, I felt I had to do something tactile that I wasn't selling well with 2D art. And I discovered a gentleman that was doing 3D art online. I ended up going to New Orleans to go to one of his workshops and um, and I still go to his workshops in Mexico and in New Orleans. It's you know, except for the pandemic years, we may or may not be able to do Mexico this year. But um, so the the blog, studiology is sort of half of this and half of that. And it used to drive me crazy that I was so much in love with two things like that. Um, and I remember complaining to somebody. I didn't. I feel like I have to do everything to a level of perfection that how can I have two things going? Uh, And I remember her advice to me was just chill. (laughs) (laughs) Great advice. And I realized she was absolutely right. Why am I working myself up about this? I love them both equally. So here I am, you know, I find it's sort of perfect in the winter. I'm doing basically full-time art. Um, Now I'm too busy to do that, really, but I try to do it at night, a little bit at a time, and um, I'm I'm happy with both, and that's just the way it's going to (laughs) be. And for our listeners, uh, we'll have a link to that blog. Yeah, and even if they just Google my name, um, they'll find it. And the the Rex Road is R-E-X-R-O-D-E, but it'll be the first thing that pops up, I think, and so you can go in that way. But yeah, it's it's now it's just I'm just talking about gardening. It's just all I'm all I'm covering. <laughs> yeah, and I love following your blog and your Instagram because because you share from the garden, but you also share some of that fun artwork. Well, on the social platform, I really feel like I don't want to share the same thing on Facebook as Instagram. So the Instagram is different, completely different from Facebook and even from my blog, I try to keep it all, uh, you know, the, the blog goes on to Facebook, but as far as the pictures on Instagram, they, they are all by themselves separate. Um, I, you know, people tend to share and do everything across all platforms and I'm trying not to do that. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing your love of 
gardening and your wisdom about perennials. Any final thoughts for our listeners? So the only thing I wanted to say to that, I'm so happy with the uptick in houseplants because I really feel like for me, that was the gateway into everything else. I really, truly still love tropical plants. And uh, um, I'm just happy that the pandemic actually turned a lot of people into gardeners. And I'm especially happy about that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hyacinth plant profile. Hyacinth, Hyacinthus orientalis, are a spring flowering bulb that have been in cultivation for more than 400 years. They originated in the Eastern Mediterranean and are sometimes referred to as Dutch hyacinths to differentiate them from the small grape hyacinth or the aquatic plant water hyacinth. Hyacinths have a strong sweet fragrance and are a long-lasting cut flower in a vase. They are also easy to force into early indoor bloom in the wintertime. The National Garden Bureau has declared 2021 as the year of the hyacinth. At one time, there were more than 2,000 named cultivars. Today, there are less than 50 cultivars available. They come in shades of blue, pink, yellow, peach, and white. Popular cultivars include Delft Blue, Gypsy Queen, and City of Harlem. For best selection, order your bulbs in spring. Plant the bulbs in mid-autumn the same as you do with tulips and daffodils. They need a sunny location with well-draining soils to prevent the bulbs from rotting. Cut off the flower spikes as soon as the flowers fade in spring to encourage the hyacinths to store more energy in their bulbs and return next year. For this same reason, do not cut back the foliage until it also starts to fade. After several years, the bulbs can revert to the original single-flowering species, so you may wish to replenish your plantings with fresh bulbs annually. Hyacinths, you can grow that. What's new this first week of April? Well, in the community garden plot, we have peas, fava beans, and asparagus emerging. In my home garden, the flowering trees are looking spectacular. That includes the weeping hygen cherry, thundercloud plum, and the straight native species redbud. The early season daffodils are just ending their bloom and the mid-season ones have started. Tulips are starting to show their color. Dutch hyacinths are looking spectacular, and great muscari is starting to form a little stream bed that I planted, or at least something that looks like a little river or brook of purple and blue flowers. If you are a big lover of bulb displays, I highly recommend visiting the Franciscan Monastery in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Washington, D.C., Every year around Easter, they have terrific displays and color combinations in their bulb gardens. Also happening in the local gardening world, I'm speaking on Saturday, April 10th at 10 a.m. virtually for Brookside Gardens. And that means anybody in the world can sign up for this talk for a nominal fee going through the Active Montgomery website. And the topic is small trees and large shrubs for small space and urban gardens. Hope you can join me for that. The following weekend is the Leesburg Flower and Garden Festival and Washington Gardener will have a booth there as well as some of the guests that you've heard on this podcast in the past, including Barbara Malera with her Harvesting History Company. And That same weekend is the start of Historic Virginia Garden Week, 
Those are tours of mostly private estates and gardens, some public ones. And this year, due to COVID, there's a little bit differences in the rules. So please go to visit their website and sign up in advance online. And I have a small favor to ask. If you enjoy this podcast, if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and if you're on Podchaser, a review there would be most welcome as well. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash kathy-gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.